хто допомагає нам боротися за свободу. Дякую кожному і кожній, хто воює і працює заради нашої перемоги. Дякую всім нашим воїнам, які зараз утримують позиції, знищують окупантів і дають Україні найголовніше відчуття, відчуття впевненості у нашому майбутньому. Слава Україні! As Ukrainian troops move on the strategically vital city of Kherson in the south, alarms are sounding that Russia may detonate a dirty bomb and blame it on Kyiv as part of a false flag operation. Meanwhile, with midterm elections fast approaching in the United States, cracks are beginning to appear in the, con- in the Congress about U.S. support for Ukraine. Winter is coming and the war is heating up, so stick around because we got because we're here to unpack it all with three awesome guests. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington Powell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location in the D.C. metro area is the one and only Andrea Kendall Taylor, a senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Before joining CNAS, Andrea served for eight years as a senior intelligence officer, and from 2015 to 2018, she was the deputy national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia at the U.S. National U.S. Intelligence Council in the office of the director of national intelligence. Welcome back to the vertical, Andrea. Your bio is a tongue twister. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Good to be back, Brian. <laughs> Good to have you. And also join us from a totally different undisclosed location in the D.C. metro area is John Cipher, a 28-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's national. Clandestine service. John also served as a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service and is the recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. These days, John is, like me, is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Welcome back to the Vertical, John. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Great to have you. And also joining us from still another undisclosed location in the D.C. metro area is Jim Townsend who served eight years as U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO policy in the administration of former U.S. President Barack Obama. These days, Jim is an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New, uh, New American Security's Transatlantic Security Program. Welcome to The Vertical, Jim. Your first appearance, hopefully not your last. It's great to be here. Thank you. Great to have you. So, Brian, Brussels Sprouts is taking over. The power okay. the and I also want to add that Andrea and Jim are the co-hosts of the awesome podcast, Brussels Sprouts. You should all listen to that. I've appeared on it and, and we'll be glad to do so in the future. So we can think of this kind of a podcast exchange. And Andrea, I did want to get started with you because I know you recently returned from a visit to Ukraine. And just to get us rolling before we kind of get into the week's news, can you give us, you give our listeners your top line takeaways from your visit, your meetings with Ukrainian officials, what you saw there, what was of note? Sure. Um, I visited back uh, kind of middle uh, to early September. And it, Brian, it feels like a lifetime ago already. Um, when we were in Ukraine, it was before the illegal annexation, before mobilization. Um, before this latest uptick in the nuclear sable rattling and all of the dirty bomb rhetoric. So it really, um, it feels like a lifetime ago. But the one, so that's the one thing that has stuck with me, um, despite all of the changes in the trajectory of the story, um, really comes down to the resilience of the Ukrainian people. And I know that sounds a little bit cliche and like a throwaway, 
Um, but it really uh, left quite an impression on me. You know, we can sit back here and read the polls and we all understand how much uh, Ukrainians uh, support this war effort. I think 97% of Ukrainians believe that Ukraine will win the war. A very large proportion believes um, that, uh, you know, the, the, and the, is willing to stay in it for the long term and is unwilling to make territorial concessions. So we, I understood all of that intellectually. Um, but to be there is quite another matter. We were able to go up to Bucha and Irpin, which is the site of the horrific atrocities. Right. Um, and you see there that um, they are rebuilding. And there are some stories out, um, I think, in a, in a Russian outlet, either Medusa or another one today, on how these communities are rebuilding. There were children in the streets. The shopper, shops are open. Uh, in Kyiv, it was, you know, that was definitely the case. There was traffic. We went out to a fabulous restaurant. And so there was this kind of cognitive dissonance where you kind of understand that you are right. you know, technically in a war zone. But to see people carry on the way that they are um, is phenomenal. The issue of nuclear um, escalation did come up, and that's a, another kind of lasting takeaway. And I will just quickly note that kind of to the Ukrainian, every single person that we had the opportunity to speak with, whether it was folks in government or in NGOs and, and um, kind of regular civilians, would tell you that the Ukrainians are not intimidated by Putin's nuclear saber rattling, um, that Putin's use of a nuclear weapon will not change the trajectory of the war. It will not change the outcome of the war. It only uh, will increase the cost that Ukrainians will face. So those are, for me, the two lasting uh -huh. that I took away. No, and that's good to hear. And I have heard from people that have gone since the escalation, and they they, they say the, the, the exact same impressions you gave. So despite the dramatic change in the ground, very little change um, in the resolve of the Ukrainian people. I do want to talk about this uh, this issue of, of, of nuclear blackmail and nuclear escalation, um, because it's, ba it's back in the news again um, with all this talk about a dirty bomb. Um, as we all know, last weekend, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu called U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, as well as the Defense Ministers of the United Kingdom in France to warn that Ukraine was pre preparing to detonate a dirty bomb, apparently on their own territory. Of course, nobody believed this because it's, uh, well, ridiculous. Um, why would Ukraine detonate a dirty bomb on their own territory? But what it appeared to indicate, and what U.S. officials are suggesting, is that Russia may be planning a false flag operation in which they would use a dirty bomb and then blame it on Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, some officials in Ukraine and Estonia are warning that Putin's threats of nuclear blackmail need to be taken seriously. I, I wanted to get all three of you to weigh in on this as as, def as intelligence and defense uh, professionals. Um, how do you, how do you each interpret Russia's dirty bomb warnings and Putin's attempts at nuclear? blackmail. How do you assess the administration's response? Um, Andrea, why don't we start with you and then just go around to, to, to John and Jim? Yeah, I'll be quick. I mean, I think it's as you, well, A, yes, it is important to take all of these seriously. But I think when we're thinking about the dirty bomb threats in particular, we have to put it in the context of the trajectory of this war. It's very clear that things are not going well for Russia in Ukraine. Ukraine continues to make significant territorial gains, even after the counteroffensive that we saw uh, a couple um, months or so ago. And so, um, I think for Putin, priority number one is making it through the winter. It is critical for Putin to slow Ukraine's advance um, 
and without losing significant territory. That's what this is about. This is about intimidation. It's about trying to get the West um, to slow its support for Ukraine. And so I see it largely as deterrence, um, as very uh, similar to the nuclear saber rattling. There is the one little thing I will say that gives me a slight bit of pause, which is why we have to take it seriously, because it does seem plausible to me that if Russia is routed in Kherson, um, that Putin could use a dirty bomb there with the logic being, well, if we can't have Kherson, then neither can you. And it would be consistent with Putin's strategy, which has been now to lay waste uh, to Ukraine. And because his tactics, his military tactics are ineffective, he's obviously taken to the bombings of cities, the targeting of uh, heating and electricity and all these things. So. Although I think um, I have you know, quite a lot of confidence that it is designed to intimidate the West, um, a little, there is the little kind of voice in the back of my head that worries that something like that would be consistent with the strategy that he is doubling down on now. Yeah, this is, I mean, I'm asked this in media appearances all the time, and I, I have a pat answer. I said that the chance is low, but it ain't zero. Right. Um, that's 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 all I can say. Um, John, how did you how did you look at this 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 dirty bomb threat and, and, and Putin's nuclear saber rattling in general? Well, I guess I'm a little less pessimistic because, you know, I you know this is Putin's war, and I look at Putin, you know, very much as a KGB officer, and he's as a KGB officer, his whole game has always been these active measures and trying to use asymmetric means to play us against each other and and weakness from within and all the things we've seen, disinformation, assassinations, deception, all that kind of stuff. And it was, you know, as Gary Kasparov, you know, the chess champion who said, you got to understand Putin, he doesn't play the chessboard as the chessboard's laid out, he plays the opponent. And so what I see with both the threat and and the dirty bomb threat, I see them as aimed at different opponents. I think the dirty bomb threat is aimed at domestic, at a domestic audience. I think he is saying to his people that we are now fighting terrorism. The mm. Ukrainians are terrorists and they could do something like use a dirty bomb. And it's a better, you know, he tried Nazis, he tried Satanism, he's tried these <laughs> things. He now needs a little bit more than he did in the past to, to make this war popular at home. So I think the dirty bomb thing may play at home that, oh my God, the, the Ukrainians could do this, they're terrorists. So I think mm. that plays to a domestic audience, whereas the nuclear threats, I think are aimed at, you know, Western leaders in France and Germany, and at our politicians. You've seen, you know, uh, the liberals or the caucus the other day, you know, write this article, and we've seen even in the right wing part of the party. Oh my goodness, you know, we can't take this seriously, and we we need to negotiate or have a ceasefire or something because these nuclear threats or something. So I, I think he's pl- he's playing mm-hmm. to the opponent. So he and frankly the pattern of bluster and bullying and threatening is what he's done for years and years. And it usually works because we usually say it's not worth it. Let's just get back to business as usual. And we give in to him. And so I see the nuclear threat is essentially just vintage Putin playing to an audience. Mm, so you see a psyop basically, you put, put this in the, in the category of almost of active measures in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, I think so too. Cause I mean, think of the, I mean, you know, yes, it is true. It's not zero, but you know, Putin's not a nut job. You know, first of all, like he could lose China and he could lose yeah. India. He could lose his own military, who takes their doc. You know, the professional military takes their doctrine seriously. That you know, m- nuclear weapons are to be used to defend the the you know the country in, 
for an existential threat. This is not an existential threat. Right. And if he's using nuclear weapons in this way, even his own leaders might say that he's being irresponsible. Right. And more importantly, it wouldn't work. The Ukrainians aren't going to give up if he uses a nuclear weapon. So I, I, I do think, you know, it's a sort of a, he's losing on the battlefield. So he has to try to change the, the, the narrative in some way. And this is an effective way to do it. Jim, would you agree with that? I had not thought of the dirty bomb as a domestic uh, device um, in that. I mean, because there, you're right, John. There has been, a, I guess you can call it an escalation from Nazis to Satan to terrorists. I guess if that is the the hierarchy of evil. I hadn't thought about that much either. But there was a good article in the New York Times today by Julian Barnes mm. that sort of lays out that vision, and that it resonated with me. So that, it's uh, worth taking a look at that if you. Okay, no, that 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 that's interesting. I will, uh, Jim. What Jim? What, what's your take on this? Well, you know, I would add a little bit more to that. I agree with what both have said, and I think in terms of a domestic audience, I think another part of that domestic audience in Russia are these mill bloggers and some of the others who are really pushing um, uh, Putin to be tough. You know, you've got to go in there and uh, show your metal. You're just pushing mm. around, and so a dirty bomb kind of thing. I think can be seen as a as an escalation that is uh, that is doable, and it can make uh, uh, Putin look a little more tough than uh, than he's looked in the past, at least in his own mind. Maybe he thinks it'll work with these mill bloggers, but uh, so there's that kind of audience too. Uh, and then the um, I, I think also I would broaden the audience to include the Europeans mm. uh, I, and, and the U.S. too. I don't want to separate us out necessarily, but particularly in Europe. Uh, the idea of a dirty bomb, you know, including in the United States, it's not well understood what it is. Uh, a dirty bomb, is that like Hiroshima? Is that a big explosion? You know, and so just the idea of a of a dirty bomb that has a nuclear aspect to it is, you know, again, part of this uh, PSYOP, part of this nuclear saber rattling. And one more thing it does, too, it's a rung on the ladder of escalation to using a tactical nuclear weapon. So he starts off with a dirty bomb and it spreads the radiation and does what these things do. Um, and then he takes a pause and see how everyone reacts to that. Uh, and it's and it and if it's uh, something he feels is, doesn't come with a big cost, uh, it'll it'll make it easier for him to take that next rung on the ladder uh, and uh, use a tactical weapon if that's something that he feels he needs to do down the road. So it's um, you know I think there's a couple of audiences that he's going at. And the domestic side, there's also the European and the U.S. audience. The um, you know making it through the winter, as uh, Andrea said, includes um, making it through the winter uh, and and splintering the Europe mm -hmm. uh, with with not just cold, but also the idea that a a um, a dirty bomb is right around the corner. So this it's just it's this terror weapon that he's using, uh, and uh, and and that it has different appeals to different audiences. Yeah, no, and we. I want to drill down into the sustainability of Western support in the second half. But I, I, one thing about this that puzzled me is like, all right, Shoigu calls Lloyd Austin and says, "Hey, I just want to warn you. I think the Ukrainians are going to use a dirty bomb." They could not have possibly believed that anybody was going to take that seriously. And the only way I could interpret is it is an implicit threat, like, "Hey, we're going to plan a, you know, we're going to we're we're going to do a false flag operation here." I mean, it just it's it it it's just the whole thing is kind of weird because just it's it's beyond me to believe that anybody would take this seriously to think the Ukrainians were actually going to do this to themselves is 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 beyond. 
absurd. Um, I want to stick with this nuclear blackmail topic a little bit more and drill deep into it. Um, cause I wanted to get all of your thoughts as, as people who have worked at the, the highest levels of the U S intelligence defense community on this, and that's assessing the veracity. Um, we touched on this a little bit already assessing that veracity of Putin's nuclear saber ratting. In other words, is he bluffing or is he serious? And, and you, you were all in positions where you had to provide advice to the political leadership about things like this. And to me, it's like, how, whenever I'm asked this question um, in media appearances, I say, man, you're, you're asking me to get inside Putin's head. And inside Putin's head is really dark, right? You can't see anything without a flashlight, right? So I really can't answer that. But as, as intelligence professionals, you had to answer those questions. You had to give the, the political leadership and the president a an honest assessment of is he bluffing or not? And this, this requires two things, Putin's intent and state of mind, which is extraordinarily difficult for the, for the reasons I just spelled out, and the nuclear chain of command as how it operates in Russia regarding tactical and battlefield nukes. We know the chain of command in terms of strategic nukes because those things are spelled out in arms control agreements. But in terms of tactical nukes, we, we really don't, as far as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, we really don't understand the chain of command. So just how do you, how do you each kind of approach that problem of assessing veracity? Um, Andrea, why don't you start? This. Veracity is a, a tricky word. Um, and, but I think, um, I, I don't, he's not bluffing, he's deterring. Right. So I guess he's th that's the point. I mean, he means what he says to, in order. I mean, it just goes back to what John was just saying in terms of playing his opponent and trying to um, get in our minds and get us to be overly concerned about the risk of escalation so that we back off in terms of our military and other support for Ukraine. So I don't think he's bluffing. He's trying to deter Western support for Ukraine. That's clear. Um, I might differ a little bit from John and maybe assign a slightly higher potential risk that he would actually move ahead and use a tactical nuclear weapon. Um, but I, A, I think that's a long ways away. B, there's no signs that he's doing it. Um, and C, but C, I do think that the risk could grow over time. Um, and I say that, I, I think the scenario in which I worry about it most is if Putin judges that his own hold on power and hence his own livelihood is called into question. And I often go back to this, you know, I am a political scientist by training and there's a lot of very good political science research on these personalist dictators. Um, and there's some research that shows what leaders expect to happen to them after they leave office affects the, the decisions that they make in office. If you're a democratic leader, you can go and retire, you know, to your nice house on the beach or whatever, you know, you ride away into the sunset. If you're Putin, I think he thinks that he'll be jailed, killed, exiled. He's watched the Qaddafis of the world. I think he thinks that if he loses power, that he, you know, his fate is not pretty. And so in that scenario, I think he could use a nuclear weapon as kind of a Hail Mary, just as a the gambit to see if, if he can change um, the outcome in some way. I don't see him using it uh, on the battlefield to any sort of kind of military effect. Um, but if we get to that situation where he is, you know, legitimately concerned about his hold on power, that's what I worry. Last point I'll make really quickly on the state of mind thing. I think it's really, you know, we, this question comes up all the time, is Putin rational? Um, and I think it misses part of the equation, which is the information environment in which Putin operates. Um, mm -hmm. As a personalist dictator, like he, he's not operating from a complete inaccurate sense of the world around him, right? So we know that people are um, 
censoring, monitoring um, the information that they passed. So it's it's hard to gauge you know where his mind is. I think he makes decisions based on faulty and inaccurate information. So that also makes me worried about mm -hmm. his judgment over the use of a nuclear weapon because it's hard to know how he's gauging the cost. When he when we all sat here and laid out a hundred different reasons why it was not in Putin or Russia's interest to invade Ukraine, and he did, I think his information environment has only deteriorated. So mm. that's what makes this so challenging. Yeah, no, and Andrew, your point about how leaders view what's going to happen to them when they leave power is actually very, very relevant. I mean, only three Russian and actually actually look back and check this. Only three Russian rulers since 1801 have enjoyed peaceful retirements. All the others have died in office or have been assassinated. So it's, and all three are relatively recent, Khrushchev, Gorbachev, and, and, and Yeltsin. Um, John, how do, you, how do you assess this? How do we get inside Putin's head? Just to, to add to what you were just saying, I remember when I went to Moscow, uh, the embassy had a tour to the KGB museum. And I remember the first, the, when you go in the first room has all the paintings of all the, various Cheka and KGB and NKVD leaders. And the, the docent would walk you around each one and explain, oh, this is Berea, and he did this and that and that. And then he was killed as an enemy of the people. And then it goes to the next <laughs> one. He was the most powerful guy, and, da, 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 and then he was killed as an enemy. It's, such, it's like everyone knows, like, you're either, like, the most powerful thing or you're dead. And that's and Andrea laid that out very well. And I also agree with her thing about uh, not bluffing its deterrence. And so I, I think she explained it well, that he is very rational, but he's rational in his bubble. As were previous Soviet leaders, Stalin, you know, the information that these guys never left the country. They didn't, you know, they got information in their little world and then they acted on it. But but you know, they weren't good at analyzing sort of what outside information really meant, even though they did have a good way of stealing it from the West. They didn't understand it very well. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think we have we don't have a source inside his head. I don't think we probably have even very many sources very close to him to let him know what he's thinking. I mean, uh, the CIA director Burns made it clear that, you know, right now his his group around him who really is influencing him is literally like two, one, two, mm -hmm. not yeah. you know, former Czechists that he's been with for 50 years are the people who are around him and he's it's listening. Patrushev and Kovalchuk are the two names that I see, yeah. see keep coming up over and yeah. over and again. So as we assess him, I think that the best way to do that, <clears throat> the only way to do it is really look at the, consistency and patterns of before. He's been in power 20 years. We've had a long time to look at how he processes and how he does things. We've often got it wrong because we keep assuming we can change the way he thinks or influence him or you know, we can you know, sort of fix the way he thinks. Now we understand you know, what he is and what makes him tick. And it's again, it's the threats, the blackmail, the bullying, the political warfare, the, the sort of terrorist asymmetric views of a KGB officer. Um, all of those things matter. I do think there are a number of other escalatory areas that he can take, again, as this KGB officer who's using, you know, deception and all these things, subversion, prior to even, you know, moving towards what we talk about, dirty bombs or tactical nuclear weapons. I mean, I do think the underwater pipeline, for example, is a good example of sending a message, you know, the kind of things he can do, cyber attacks are the kind of things he can do, influencing, you know, political issues outside, you know, maybe starting to mess with uh, you know, the way NATO is getting weapons into mm -hmm. Ukraine. There, there's a lot of things he can do that are that are painful and, and troubling that can 
is his way of showing his seriousness and trying to get us to, to back down uh, as, as he buys time because he doesn't have many realistic good options. It's a matter of trying to buy time and hope that you know something changes or that the leaders in the West think that you know politically it's just too hard for them to hold on. Yeah, so what I'm hearing from both of you is that in the short term, this is, it's not a bluff, it's deterrence in the short term. But in the long term, as the as the existential threat to Putin staying in power gets very, very real, so does the so does this this, this this nuclear threat, and I would I would assume that there are contingencies being planned out for that eventuality, because this gets into, us into a situation where we don't want to accomplish the goal we set out to accomplish, which is that is Ukraine winning the war, and that's that's a paradox, and that's tricky, and I'm, I'm, I'm I certainly hope these scenarios are being uh, being played out. If you look at out. those patterns of bullying and everything, another pattern over time is when he is faced with a real threat, he backs down. Yeah, so I think we're, you know, we're afraid that, oh, my God, if we push too far, he's going to react. But the pattern has been he backs down. So, I mean, are we willing yeah. to make that risk? I don't know. I, I would say we should, but that's not, you know, I'm not, I'm sitting yeah. here. Oh. No, I, I, uh, I co-authored a piece with Maria Snegovaya, also of CNES, on this very topic where we, we laid out how time and time again he backs down. What worries me about this is that this is existential for him. And that's what's frightening. Jim, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think, you know, we were just saying that uh, he's not bluffing, he's deterring. And I think that's right. But I would add, he's not bluffing, he's also shaping. He's shaping views in Europe. He's mm. shaping views in the U.S. He's shaping views at home. We were talking about that. Uh, so that's something else that this is, uh, this is doing for him. And again, it, it goes back to a tool. Uh, he's reaching a point now, and Andrea was saying this, that... that uh, Things are not going well on the battlefield, so he's he's pretty desperate for anything he can to get him to where he needs to be, and that is with a Europe splitting off, a U.S. splitting off, unity dropping off, and support dropping for Ukraine. If he mm -hmm. can get support for Ukraine to level off or drop, particularly in the United States, then he's going to be uh, in a much better place than he is now with Ukraine running out of ammunition, not getting HIMARS or ATACMs or anything else. Uh, and that's where he really wants to be. You know, at the end of the day, that's where he wants to be. So this particular weapon, uh, this terror weapon, this uh, idea of a, either a, a tactical nuke or a dirty bomb, if that can get him to shake up the West, mm -hmm. get the Republicans uh, to back off of assistance, to cut the amount in half or something like that, that's a huge victory yeah. for Putin. So this is, I mean, this is, I guess, John, you'll be familiar with this term and Andrea as well, the, the, the doctrine of reflexive control, right? Shaping and framing the environment so your opponent behaves in the way that you want them to behave, not in the way that's in their interest. And I want to drill much deeper into this in the second half of the program. But briefly, before we do, I wanted to just touch on two things, the situation on the ground. Because as all this noise about dirty bombs has been, has been you know, in the headlines, Ukraine is slowly, steadily moving closer to Kherson. I, ex I think Kherson might fall pretty soon, um, which would be just huge. I mean, that was the first city Russia took. Um, and for a while, it was the only major city they held. But it's also just strategically vital, right? It's a vector into Crimea. 
Um, so it would cut off Russian supply lines and give the Ukrainians something previously unthinkable, a vector into Crimea. Also, it, it is a bulwark against Russia moving west along the seacoast uh, through Mikolaev and the port of Odessa. So, I, I, I mean, the, the fall of Kherson would be enormous, and it seems to be coming. The other thing I wanted to touch on is the state of the Russian army post mobilization has the mobilization really changed anything jim why don't i just stick with you and then circle back through andrea and john on the uh, on this uh, how do you how do you see the situation on the ground right now and how do you see the russian armed forces in the aftermath of the mobilization well i in terms of the russian forces in the aftermath of the mobilization you know i don't think we we i think the jury is still out because the mobilization uh I think is still going on, and particularly the training and the outfitting uh, is, is still going on. We have another guest on the podcast today. We have, <laughs> it's all right. So I believe that in terms of the, the state of the Russian uh, army right now, I, I think around Kherson, uh, there's that's still more the veteran down there. That's less the mobilized yeah. uh, Russian uh, who, who has, as I said, I think is still in the middle of of being trained and outfitted, and even so, training and air quotes and outfitting and air quotes too. Uh, so I think the I think the jury is still out on how that's going. But in the Kherson area, that's still going to be a tough fight with uh, Russian soldiers that have been down there for a while. They're dug into uh, defensive positions, uh, many of the positions dug by Ukraine uh, itself, and so uh, so it's going to be quite different there. And I I'll say one thing, and I'll. Um, I don't want to draw too close a comparison here, but during the Civil War for Lincoln, Gettysburg, uh, victory at Gettysburg was absolutely critical for support from the North and to get uh, to you know push back on the Europeans who were going to support the South. So Gettysburg as a battle had a huge, uh, you know, for its size in a sense, it was a big battle, of course, but it was. Uh, but it was really important for other reasons than just the, uh, you know, a battlefield mm. position. And I think Kersen in some ways is yeah. that yep. if, if, uh, if Putin loses there, um, you know, that's going to it's going to send quite a shiver through uh, oh, yeah. his supporters there in the Kremlin is going to really begin to maybe solidify some opposition to him. Some in some places in Russia It's going to demoralize the uh, Russian military the, uh, for sure. Uh, so this is really something that he's got to win. And right now, the position of the Russian military is not a good one there. Uh, right. And Ukraine is coming in with a lot of its trained veterans, too. So uh, so if he loses in Kherson, what his next move is is going to be very interesting, and it might not be a very pleasant one. Yeah, no, I, I I like this analogy of Harrison as Gettysburg. That's a that's that's a great analogy. Um, Andrea, you wrote a very timely piece that we discussed in this podcast before the war, um, right sizing Russia. You co-authored it with our our mutual friend uh, Michael Michael Kaufman, um, where we were we always have this tendency to overestimate or underestimate the Russian armed forces, right? Right now, Ukraine's winning, and now the narrative is the Russian armed forces are a basket case, where just eight months ago, they were, you know, they, they were a thousand feet tall and could not be beaten. Um, how do you, I mean, you're, you're well-versed in this. How do you view the situation right now? Ukraine's winning. I mean, we're expecting Harrison to, to, to fall. The Russian military does look like it's in tatters, but are we gonna make the mistake again of underestimating the Russian armed forces? 
Well, I think in Ukraine and in particular around Kherson, it's obvious um, that the Russian military is extremely degraded. Um, and I just to echo everything that Jim said, um, but to, to say one additional thing, even though those are some of Russia's better fighters, more experienced, they're exhausted. They've been there for a really long time. They haven't been able to uh, rotate off the line. And winter is coming. And we know that Ukraine has done a really good job at disrupting supply lines. So Russia's ability to get winter gear into those troops and other things, I think, is going to be extremely difficult. So their ability to hang on through this, I think, is highly questionable. And so I share um, some of your optimism about Ukraine's ability to make some success, uh, to, to make some progress down there. Uh, the interesting thing is, though, to see that Russia does appear. I mean, I think we expected them perhaps to to evacuate and clear the west bank of the river, mm -hmm. uh, but now it looks increasingly like they're gearing up to, to fight and to defend Kherson city. They're doing that at the same time that they are reinforcing their defensive positions on the other side. Um, but we could be gearing up for a really intense um, and really important battle there. Um, my concern is even if Ukraine makes progress there, um, that that in many ways, you know, is some of the lower hanging fruit in this. And everything after Kherson, I think, will be extremely difficult. Mm. Of course, it could have the effect that Jim said, that if it really does kind of sap morale, um, that maybe it could be more of a turning point. But I think, again, I... I worry a little bit that in the West that we have already kind of declared that Ukraine is winning. It has won. Um, and there is still a really long yeah. way to go in this. So, so I think it's important just to, 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 to make that clear. This is likely to be extremely prolonged and we need to set our expectations yeah. and make the preparations to sustain this for a long time. Yeah, this concerns me too, that we always, we already feel like Ukraine has won and I think they are going to win, but it's just gonna take some time and, and, and Western publics are notorious for their short attention spans. John, your th uh, last thoughts to you before we shift into the second half on this. Yeah, I don't have much to add. You know, I'll leave it to Andrea and Jim. They, she's been out there. I haven't, the, my only point is exactly her sort of last point is let's not overreact to this. Even if they take Kherson, which would probably be tough to do, um, that's not a threat to Russia itself. It doesn't mean that Russia is all fleeing back into Russia and, and the world is ending for them. Uh, it just makes it harder for them to take an offensive and, and you know, protect Crimea and those type of things. And so um, it's a big deal, but it doesn't mean the, the war is over by any stretch. Yeah, although it would mean that they would suddenly have to defend Crimea, which would be uh, a remarkable development. Uh, in, in a few moments, and it's a good way to segue, in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at some of the emerging signs of cracks in the U.S. consensus to support Ukraine and what they may mean going forward. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location in the D.C. metro area is Andrea Kendall-Taylor, a senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a new American security. Before joining CNAS, Andrea served for eight years as a senior intelligence officer, and from 2015 to 2018, she was deputy national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia at the U.S. National Intelligence Council in the office of the director of national intelligence. And joining us from a totally different undisclosed location in the D.C. metro area is John Seifer, a 28-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. John also served as a member of the CIA's senior intelligence service and is the, re <clears throat> is the 
the recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. These days, John is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining us from still another undisclosed location in the D.C. metro area is Jim Townsend, who served eight years as U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO policy. These days, Jim is an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New uh, for, <clears throat> the Center for a New American Securities Transatlantic Security Program. Um, that is a tongue twister. I don't know why I keep fumbling. I will add that Andrea and Jim are the co-hosts of the excellent podcast Brussels Sprouts, which everybody should subscribe to um, and, and, and give a big fat five-star rating. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... С новым годом вас. С новым веком. For supporting Ukraine might be beginning to erode. First, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said recently that should the Republicans take back the House of Representatives, something that looks very, very likely, then support for Ukraine would likely be curtailed. Then, this week, a group of 30 members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus signed a letter calling on President Joe Biden to engage in direct negotiations with Russia to end the war. After severe pushback from other Democrats, the group rescinded the letter. But nevertheless, the incident showed that there is increased hesitation on both the left and the right. Um, uh, uh, despite continuing bipartisan support for Ukraine. I mean, the way I like to picture it is that the, the part of our political spectrum between the 40-yard lines, you know, on the football field is solid. But once you get into that, once you get into the red zone, it's a little, it's, it, it, gets, it gets a little sketchy. Um, Andrew, how do you read what we've been seeing from, from, from Leader McCarthy's comments to the, the Progressive uh, Caucus's letter that was later rescinded? How, how do you see this? Should we be, should we be worried? about support for Ukraine really eroding. I think it's a little bit hard to actually decipher what's going on. Um, obviously, you know, when, especially when I saw the Democrats' letter, my heart really sank. <laughs> Tell me um, about it. <laughs> and I mean, you know, for a couple of reasons, the two most important of which, number one, I think th these types of statements and these signals obviously reinforce Putin's belief that mm -hmm. he can wait the West out. Um, and it also, you know, gives me a little bit of heartburn for what it tells our allies. Um, Jim and I were just in Riga last week, and I can tell you our European allies are really anxious about what the midterm election will mean for Washington staying power in the war with Ukraine. While we were there, it was when McCarthy's uh, statement came out, there were a lot of questions. And so you can only imagine then when this letter comes out what our allies are thinking. I think, you know, they are really worried. Um, but... I think I have a more optimistic take. And right before we jumped on this, I looked up the polling from uh, the Chicago Council um, that you know was uh, did a poll recently to gauge American support for the war in Ukraine. And there is still extremely strong and bipartisan support for uh, support for America's continued uh, support for Ukraine. Seventy one percent of Americans support continuing economic aid. Seventy two percent of Americans 
support continuing military aid, and 58% of Americans are willing to support Ukraine as long as it takes. So there's, it feels to me, a little bit of disconnect between what we're seeing from some leaders in Congress and where the American public is at. Um, and my take is, even after the midterms, um, you know, it might not be quite as strong, but that that the, the strong bipartisan support that we've seen up until now um, will continue. I, I, I certainly hope you're right. And I, there are some data points to support that. I was just reading a piece uh, yesterday about how J.D. Vance, the Senate, the Republican Senate candidate in Ohio, is getting a lot of pushback for 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 his statements that we should curtail our support for Ukraine. So even even in a in a state like Ohio, where economic concerns are of primary uh, importance, you, you you still see the strong support for the effect that is affecting the election. Jim, what what was, what was your take on this? Well, like Andrea, I was really surprised at Riga, where the allies, all of them from across the alliance, uh, this wasn't just Baltic, and friends and colleagues of longstanding who know the American system uh, up and down, they were very concerned about uh, what could happen. Uh, you know, they were, they were, you know, they, there's this trust aspect still in Europe yep. that comes from not just Trump, but also some in the Obama administration as well, some of our policies there. Uh, Kabul, AUKUS, I mean, there's been a drumbeat for a while now uh, where um, we're not the predictable uh, U.S. that we used to be, uh, that, that, um, that we, there is this, uh, this contingency that we could uh, walk away uh, that, or, or that we will uh, just say, look, this isn't uh, meeting our expectations, and so we're going to take our ball and go home. And they're afraid that the... Uh, that the midterms will signal that and that Trump might come back. I got that a lot too. Will Trump come back? Uh, and, th and that's because in their minds, should that happen, they, the European allies, old and new, are exposed because they're not ready to fill mm -hmm. our shoes there. Uh, whether it's ammunition stocks, whether it is uh, a, a large number of uh, weapons, you know, at scale, if you will, that the mm -hmm. kind of scale we can bring, it's not there. And so there's a real fear that. Uh, that this is in the offing. Uh, and so what I said was, I said, look, I think at the end of the day, the assistance will still come, but it's gonna be more painful for Biden. Biden mm. and the administration will go forward to Congress uh, with assistance requests, and they're gonna make it really hard on Biden to get it through the Congress. And mm. they're gonna weaponize it uh, so that it can be used as a club to beat him over the head with. Uh, as they have the run up to the to the presidential campaign, so I think the assistance is going to come, and I think Andrea laid out a lot of the statistics showing that. I just think that if the Republicans control the House, particularly, they're just going to make it really hard uh, for uh, Biden to justify it and to swear up and down that it's being spent wisely. Right, right. No, I'm, that's that's my concern. One thing that probably won't be touched is the intelligence sharing, which is the one of the unsung heroes of of of, of, of this war. The president can can, as my as I understand it, can do that unilaterally and doesn't really need to get congressional approval. John, you uh, like me, we're 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 pretty active on uh, on on Twitter in the aftermath of this 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 letter. Um, I was doing my best to you know, kick up a shitstorm. Uh, so are so are you? Um, how how do you how do you interpret this whole thing? The letter, McCarthy's. McCarthy's remarks, what we may be seeing going forward after the midterms. Well, it's frustrating having been a practitioner and worked in the executive branch. First of all, how meaningless this is. They essentially put out a bunch of stuff that is, would have, even if it was sensible, would have had no effect on actual policy and people trying to work day to day and dealing with the Russians. It's just them preening and pressing for themselves so they can act like they're part of, you know, 
dealing with foreign policy, but then to screw your own party right before an election and to essentially play into Putin talking points, the same kind of talking points that the right has been pushing. It just was a, it was a, it was an old, they own goal, as they say, I mm. think it was really, really poorly done, you know, and frankly, again, it, it, it's years and years of Putin sort of weaponizing everything, right? So we talked about what Kasparov said about, you know, he plays the opponent. And so he's been doing propaganda and disinformation, playing to our fringes and the fringes in Europe for years and years. So it's been a nonstop sort of relentless boom, boom, boom. He's weaponized energy. He's weaponized information. He's weaponized food. He's weaponized refugees. He's pushing to try to make our economies weak. He's playing for time because he doesn't have many options. But the one advantage he does have is if portions of the polity in European countries and places like Italy and Austria or in the United States start to you know, realize that their economy is suffering over time and realize that, hey, is Ukraine that important to us? I think you know that's his thing. He thinks if he plays for enough time, something will yeah. happen. I, I don't think it will, but it's up to Biden to continue to push and explain to the American people why this is important. You know, when I spoke to my, my friends from back home, you, you got to take, why why does this matter? Why is our economy suffering matter in terms of, you know, support to Ukraine? Right. It has to be made simple and clear to the American people over and over so that they they continue to support this kind of, this yeah. kind of war. And so it's not, it's not easy and it's going to have, it's going to take a lot of issue because essentially like, like Jim said, and Andrew said, if Republicans win in, in the midterms, it's going to make it harder. And frankly, all this talk about Ukraine winning, all this kind of, if Trump comes back, that all goes away. Putin, right. There's one way for Putin to win, and it's if Trump comes back. Brian? Yeah, yeah go ahead, Andrew. One quick point. One thing that could become more of an issue, particularly with a, um, a Congress dominated more by Republicans, is this um, growing disparity in support between the United States and Europe. Mm. I think that's something that... Um, you know, it, it might become like the new 2% for the Congress to kind of beat up and do the Europe bashing. And so that's enough uh -huh. that I think all of us kind of transatlanticists are going to want to keep a careful eye on. So that, that's yeah, it's, yeah, it's going to be a sore spot in the in the alliance. Jim, you had a two finger on that. Just to say that I mentioned that to uh, some friends of mine at U.S. Mission NATO. Who... We welcome dog. We welcome dogs in the power. So I mentioned this fact uh, that uh, Andrea just talked about in terms of another 2% uh argument that the republicans are used against the allies because a lot of times when uh the, the administration rolls out one of their assistance packages it goes through a laundry list of equipment and at the very bottom it says and the allies have provided uh five uh eight uh mlrs right and, and it's like uh so i i called the mission uh at nato and said can't the alliance can't nato headquarters put out something uh that has uh a breakout of what the, all the allies are doing because in fact they're they're they are doing things mm, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh the, the point was that well you know uh the allies don't like to to have it known what they're providing to ukraine it's, this doesn't sit well in moscow for some of them et cetera, et cetera. so there is a reluctance to do that so um i mentioned that well what we're going to need to do is maybe not mention the countries themselves but just the items uh, mm. 500 tanks and three HIMARS or whatever it might be, uh, and uh, so that there's a there's a way in which uh, the American people, but also the Congress, can see that it's not just us. Uh, in fact, I read and I think Liz Sly had a great piece in the Post today, and I think it was in her article where she said, 
really, if you look at assistance um, uh, by percentage of GDP, it's Latvia that's number yep. one. Uh, Latvia is number one. Estonia is number two. Yeah. <laughs> so um, no, that that is true by by a percentage GDP. Yeah. Yeah, and I think so. For what Andre is saying is right, and I haven't seen a lot of this yet, but it's coming, and I hope the administration is going to get ready for it. I mean, one of the things I hope the administration does, and if anybody's listening, if you can do this, please do it, um, and that is to go to the Congress during the lame duck when the Democrats are still in control and get a very large appropriation that would carry the administration through the remaining two years. Now, I, I think that's realistic. I think they can do that. Um, my understanding of how the American government works suggests that they can do that. Um, any of you are who have all worked in government, and I have not, correct me if I am wrong, but I think the president can go to the lame duck and request a very large appropriation and says, this is the last one, this will get us through. Andrew, you're smiling, maybe do you... Do, do, I'm smiling about my lack of understanding of how the U.S. Congress works. That's, that's okay. <laughs> well, Jim, go ahead. Well, I'll, I'll say that I thought the same thing just a few hours ago as I was walking the same dog that's been barking. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, uh, that, that uh, we should try to get what we can uh, because we're going to roll into this uh, the run-up to the presidential uh, contest. And if Trump does come back, uh, this could be, you know, it. And in terms of an, of assistance, so we're going to have to make it really count. We right. can't assume that uh, we'll have assistance flows in the coming few years the way we've had them in the past. And if Trump, in fact, is the one that's elected, uh, John, as John was saying, you know, you're not going to see assistance uh, the way uh, it's been in the past if, right. if you've got Trump in the White House. Right. So we're going to have to really make it count. Yeah, yeah. One last thought on all this. I mean, the, these calls to negotiate, I find just really, really irritating because negotiation's fine in some instances. But in this instance, if I fail to see what exactly are we going to be negotiating about? How much of Ukraine's territory Russia gets to keep? How much genocide they get to commit? Right. I mean, what what are what is actually on the table to negotiate? Um, so, so calling for negotiations is all fine in the abstract. But in, in this in this instance, it uh, I found it really irritating. We're bumping up against the end, but there is just one last thing I wanted to get a, a touch on because it, came, it was in the news today. Putin gave a speech at the Valdai uh, discussion group um, in which he assailed Western elites, um, but not all Western elites. It was a very interesting, uh, uh, very Putin-esque move. He said, there isn't one West. There's a West that is filled with all of these out-of-touch, cosmopolitan elites that are trying to force on the rest of the world this political correctness. I don't think he used that word, but that was, seemed to be what he was saying. And then there's the real West that wants to defend Christian values just like us. We're on the side of that. And this is something I've been tracking for a long time, uh, going back to 2011-2012. And that is efforts by Russia to drive wedges in, to, to inject themselves into the American cultural wars and the European cultural wars as, as well. I was just kind of wanted to get a sense of how you each kind of interpreted Putin's speech today. I mean, I saw it as part of this pattern um, that's been going on for a long time, um, but he's clearly appealing to the Western far right in this speech, um, which is not surprising, but it's still disturbing. Uh, Andrew, you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess not surprising. I mean, that's right, the tried and true Putin tactic, which is the divide and conquer. Um, and as you said, Brian, I mean, you know this better than anyone else. 
And just to go back to the original point that we've been making, I mean, we shouldn't be um, cavalier or overly optimistic about the staying power of the West because there are real challenges and risks that are coming down the pike. And I think Putin understands that. So going into this winter, we have uh, high inflation, high energy prices. Um, we very well could see a massive new wave of Ukrainian um, refugees into Europe. Um, we in the West obviously have problems uh, or challenges sustaining our industrial production so that we can keep providing weapons. Uh, Putin very well could back out of the grain deal, which also could send migrants up from the South into Europe. There's all of the Russian sabotage. So I think he understands all of the stress and the strain that Europe and the United States will be under. And he's trying to push pressure on those pieces to get it to crumble. I mean, we've all alluded to that throughout. So tried and true, it makes sense, um, it's predictable. Um, and then I guess the only other thing about the speeches, and again, all tried and true and predictable is just going back to the domestic audience, which John was talking about, there was so much kind of railing against the West and trying to portray Russia as on the defensive. Right, all of these lines about that the war in Ukraine is because the West has started it, that we are the irresponsible nuclear saber rattlers and all of that kind of stuff. So there's that element of it too. And I think John is so right that he is working over time to try to convince Russians, A, that they're, it's a defensive war, because I don't think there's not as many people who support this war of aggression against Ukraine. So he's trying to convince people that it's defensive. Um, and, 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 and so th that is really an important part of the strategy as well. And his appeals to the West would be are made more disturbing when you see a very popular cable news host, whom I will not name, when uh, his, his commentaries, the only difference between his commentaries and those of anchors on Russian news are that the ones on Russian news are in the Russian language and the ones here are in the English language. Yeah, Jim. I would say also that uh, that kind of strategy of, of appealing to the base uh, you know, uh, uh, Putin appealing to the, the base is a double-edged sword for him. Uh, you know, J.D. Vance uh, has found that out with the Ukraine-Americans in Ohio uh, uh, decrying where Vance is in terms of his position on Ukraine. But also, if I were a Democrat running uh, and I had uh, someone espousing this, uh, this uh, sympathy for Russia, uh, you know, in the way that Putin was talking about the West, I'd flip it on him and say, "So you're you really you are you're supporting this uh, this uh, this uh, barbarian who's committed war crimes, et cetera, et cetera." Is that really where? I mean, you could you could yeah. in a sense, uh, take what Putin is saying and his appeal to the U.S. base, if you will, uh, and really flip it in a way that um, that that might make the the base rethink it. Well, they don't think, but it might uh, certainly play not play very well uh, by being too closely associated with a, a Putin point of view. So I think it, if it, it could work in some places, uh, maybe on Fox News, but I think with some uh, on the base, they might not want to be so closely associated with things that yeah. Putin is saying. Yeah, one has to think that Ronald Reagan must be turning over in his grave. Uh, John, you get the last word. But frankly, you know, this is asymmetric warfare. This is the warfare of the weak against the strong. I think this is a sign of weakness. If he was winning, he wouldn't be whining so much, right? This is a, this is a way of he's got no options, so he has the hope that by damaging us from the inside will somehow play to him in the long run. He's not playing real strength ball here. He's not, you know, this is a sign that he's losing and that this is a sign when we should be doubling down. 
John, you get the quote of the podcast. If he was winning, he would not be whining so much. I cannot think of a better way to wrap it up. That is all we have. That's all the time we have for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Article Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My, I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from an undisclosed location in the D.C. Metro area has been Andreas Kendall-Taylor, a senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Pro- Program at the Center for a New American Security. Before joining CNAS, Andreas served for eight years as a senior intelligence officer from 2015 to 2018. She was deputy national security officer for Russia Eurasia in, uh, at the U.S. National Intelligence Council in the office of the director of national intelligence. And joining us from a totally different undisclosed location in the D.C. metro area has been the one and only John Seifert a 28-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. John also served as a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service and is the recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. These days, John is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and joining us from still another undisclosed location with his dog has been the one and only Jim Townsend, who served eight years as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and European and NATO policy in the administration of former President Barack Obama. These days, Jim is an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security Transatlantic Security Program. And Jim and Andrea are the co-hosts of the excellent podcast, Brussels Sprouts, which you should all listen to. Thank you all for an enlightening discussion. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Dylan Holberg is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Dylan also handles our all important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes, and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Group Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.